men who are husbands and fathers, we all have an, we have an experiential understanding of one particular dynamic. We understand this just from experience. And if you, if you think this in theory, that's fine. But once you've experienced it, then you know it for certain. And that is that the life of a Christian family man is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of giving. It's a life of expending yourself, or at least it ought to be. And technically, this isn't a Father's Day message. I don't generally let man-made holidays determine my preaching schedule as a rule. But it's interesting to me today that we happen to come to the portion in our series in Matthew 5 that we're calling Authentic Christianity, those things that genuine, regenerate believers in Christ do that demonstrate that their faith is real, that today we happen to come to Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus addresses in no uncertain terms the potential selfishness of sinful men. And by extension, women as well. But in his day, the, the main problem was with men. Today we're addressing the dynamic of authentic Christianity that the authentic believer in Christ protects his marriage, protects her marriage. The authentic believer protects their marriages. The biggest enemy of marriage is self-love. And so today I'd like to propose that the authentic Christian guards against self-love at all costs. I want to just divide our thoughts about self-love into three parts Because this is a a complex text, just two verses, but it is a bit of a minefield uh, theologically. The authentic Christian guards against self-love, and I want to divide our thoughts into three parts. The first part is, I'll call the the cover-up of self-love. The cover-up of self-love. Matthew 5, 31. Jesus is speaking, now it was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I know, wow, really on Father's Day, we're going to talk about this. That's why I love expository preaching. It was the next text in line. So we've already said that in Matthew 5, Six times Jesus uses the formula, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we've dealt with that in detail, but just to recap, Jesus is giving new covenant law that Moses previously in the old covenant gave the standard of living for a believer in Yahweh, but now Jesus, the better Moses, he's giving the standard of living under the new covenant and his law is supreme. He's also correcting the abuses that self-righteous leaders of Israel had promoted these lovers of self that Jesus excoriates in Matthew 23, pronouncing curse after curse after curse, curses seven times over on these false leaders. Now when Jesus says, now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, he's referencing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And the study of Deuteronomy 24 is a a long and lengthy topic we don't have time for today. But let it be sufficient to say that it's a general law concerning divorce in the Old Covenant that allowed for divorce in the case of a, a torturous, horrific situation in which a woman is trapped in a marriage that's characterized by cruelty and by torment. It was a command that if a man was going to divorce his wife, he had to provide her with a divorce certificate to allow her legal protection so that she could prove that she'd been put out of the home. And you have to understand, in the ancient Near East, divorce wasn't something that happened through the government. It was something that just happened in your home. You, you simply said, I'm done being married with you. And in both the ancient uh, Hebrew world and in the ancient Greek, Greco-Roman world, you were divorced. And so the law said, if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to provide her with a certificate that says so. It was a protection for her. But many Jews, in particular the leaders, presumed Deuteronomy 24 to be a statement that I can divorce my wife for anything unpleasant, anything I don't like. You literally could divorce your wife because she burned your dinner. And so the Jewish leaders had this twisted view that 
they should be honored because when I divorced my wife, I gave her the certificate of divorce. I did what the law commanded me to do. But keep in mind that the Jewish leaders took Deuteronomy 24 as a permission to, to get rid of their wives for any reason whatsoever. And so it was not only an excuse to supposedly obey the law and self-righteousness by exalting themselves for keeping the law, but even worse, it was a rationalized, legalized way to replace the wife of your youth with a new woman when you so desired. And so what it created was a no-fault divorce system. And it resulted in a whole chain of adultery because remarriage after an illegitimate divorce resulted in illegitimate and adulterous relationships for everyone involved. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. But there's a reason that Jesus says that the wicked man getting rid of his wife makes her commit adultery. And listen carefully, it's not a condemnation of that woman. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first we have to understand the one exception that Jesus gives here. He says, except for the reason of sexual immorality. That's the one exception he gives. He gives this exception which allows for a legitimate divorce. And just to give a little background here, sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which speaks broadly of any sexual sin whatsoever. It doesn't really reference the marital status of either party. But in Jesus' day, it, it meant more than specifically marital adultery, but it included uh, adultery. Other texts demonstrate that that's the most common usage. And so in this context, porneia speaks of a married person, a woman in this case, being physically unfaithful to her spouse. And according to Jesus, the spouse who has an unfaithful partner is free to leave the marriage. Well, now this leads us to another rabbit trail. We have to address the practical outworking of porneia. What does this mean? Does porneia mean a one-time act? Does it mean a series of acts? Or does it mean unrepentant patterns of sin? In other words, if a man's wife is unfaithful one time, does he now possess a get-out-of-marriage-free card, according to Matthew 5? Or to put it this way, is the person who commits adultery and repents in the same category as the person who will not repent? This is a serious question because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 lists adulterers as those who are unable to, who cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that they're not saved. So is a repentant and changed adulterer still to be treated as an unbeliever? No, we can't say that. To say that one act or even a series of acts puts a person in the category of the one who can't inherit the kingdom, that's a, a grave error in the doctrine of salvation. That means adultery is an unforgivable sin. It means that the cross of Christ can cover everything except that particular sin. This even has a name. Some call this the once an adulterer, always an adulterer view. And this view flies in the face of the nature of God's forgiveness of us as believers in Christ as he remembers our sins no more. And so, in this particular case, porneia is speaking of unrepentant spousal adultery. There's no move toward sorrow. There's no move toward behavior change. There's no repentance. There's no anguish at immoral behavior. There's, there's nothing but but lies and deceit and justification. Well, if you knew how bad he was, you would understand and so forth. There's no desire to heal the marriage. There's no desire to ask for forgiveness. There's only desire to point blame and to continue on and to say, well, I'm just pursuing my own happiness. And so Matthew 5, 31 and 32 isn't a command to divorce a wife who commits adultery. It's a misunderstanding. It's an allowance for divorce in this case, for a wife who has essentially abandoned all faithfulness and propriety to pursue her lovers or who continues to justify her sin on any basis whatsoever. And so divorce is given as a mercy. It's given as a kindness by God to not keep someone legally bound to an adulterous spouse for life. There's another little side note we have to address. We should note that you cannot build a full theology of divorce on one passage of Scripture. You can't do it. You can't just pick your favorite one and go with that. They fit together like pieces of a pie. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus gives unrepentant adultery as the single exception which allows for divorce. And if you know your Bible a bit, 
you might be scratching your head and thinking, okay, wait a minute, what about 1 Corinthians 7.15, which says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. This is a case in which a new Christian finds himself or herself married to an unbeliever. And this unbeliever doesn't want to remain married in any reasonable sense. This is a bigger topic about the nature of abandonment. I can't go into that right now, but suffice to say that abandonment of the marriage can happen physically by actual separation or it can happen emotionally by abuse and torture in the marriage under the same roof. But my point is is that Paul seems to give a second exception, that of abandonment. So what do we make of that? Well, let me give you three factors to understand this. First of all, we never try to pit Scripture against itself. So we rule out any sort of contradiction. We don't get just to to, to pick, well, I prefer to go with the 1 Corinthians 7.15, but I prefer the Matthew 5.31-32. We don't pit Scripture against itself. The second factor speaks more to the context of Matthew 5.31-32. Jesus is addressing a specific audience. He's addressing a pre-church, pre-Pentecost, pre-cross Jewish crowd. They didn't have this situation of a Holy Spirit indwelt new believer in Christ suddenly married to an unbeliever. That situation didn't exist. That was a situation unique after Pentecost, after the inauguration of the church age. And the third factor is that the point that Jesus is making here is not to give a comprehensive theology of divorce. It's too complex a topic, certainly to ever do that in two verses. His point is to aim a spear of righteous indignation against the self-righteous behavior of Jews who used the law to justify their own sin. Those who said, well, she looked sideways at another man one time, I judge her an adulteress, therefore I am obeying the law by getting rid of her. He is pointing specifically at that. That's what brings us to what I've called the cover-up of self-love. The cover-up of self-love, Jesus is addressing this heinous and self-absorbed attitude toward marriage that many Jews were demonstrating and Matthew 19 will show later was modeled primarily by the leadership. Modeled by the leaders. It was an attitude toward marriage that was absolutely the opposite of to have and to hold, to love, honor, and cherish in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer for better or for worse, till death do us part. It's the opposite of the lifelong commitment to the one flesh, one person relationship that's so mysterious, so wondrous that Peter calls marriage the grace of life in 1 Peter 3, 7. Now last time when we were in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, I addressed the self-love of sexual sin. And I talked for a long time about young people pursuing romantic relationships before they're ready or, or close to being ready for adult life and to, be married, and to be married. And we talked about the fact that by definition, teenage dating relationships are centered on self-love. They're, they're centered on this relationship, how it makes me feel, what it does for me. Not on a commitment to sacrifice, a commitment to serve the other for a lifetime, to give up my hopes and my dreams to serve the other. And as long as you view marriage as a means to getting things you want, and certainly a godly marriage has benefits for both spouses, but if you primarily view the other person as a means to make you happy, to making your dreams come true, then you've missed the whole point of what a biblical marriage is. This is precisely the type of selfish attitude Jesus is addressing. And and I would just say this, it's a trap and it's a lie from Satan that you can only be happy and content in your marriage once you've fully aired all your grievances, fully made certain the other person knows all their faults, made certain fully that the other knows that he or she will never ever live up to your expectations, fully made certain that the other knows that they're utterly unforgivable. And if I could say this in all gentleness but directness, if you are miserable and discontent and whining in your own heart about your spouse, that speaks less to the state of your marriage and much more to the state of your own heart. Because marriage is a gift from God. And 100% of you who are married, they're married to imperfect sinners. There are no exceptions to that. 
And so in the interest of protecting your marriage, the very best thing you can do is to protect your own heart. That's how you protect your marriage. To be on guard against bitterness and lovelessness, to be on guard concerning trying to replace the Holy Spirit in the life of your spouse, trying to affect total sanctification of the other person, that I will perfect him, I will perfect her before the end of life here. You know how many times that a, a nagging wife or a disagreeable husband has told his spouse, you finally made it, you've made it to perfect sanctification, zero, it's never happened never happened how about this being on guard concerning mistaking your preferences and your wishes for actual sin issues should you confront sin in your marriage absolutely your brother and sister in Christ should you gripe about everything that's not your preference no we're we're different and your preference is not the gold standard of right and wrong here's a sample list of thoughts to beware of see if you've cultivated and activated any of these thoughts I don't deserve this. Should we answer that theologically? What do you deserve? She should know what I want. He's lucky I put up with him. I don't tell him half the things that irritate me. He should be grateful. She should thank God that she has me. Or how about this one? Believing a preference to be indicative of sin. He's so selfish for wanting to go hiking when I wanted to watch a movie. She's so selfish for wanting to watch a movie when I wanted to go hiking. Now, you might chuckle at these a bit, but the fact of the matter is is that that habitual, normal cultivation of those types of thoughts puts you in the category that Jesus is condemning. The self-love of someone who believes that the most important person in the marriage is looking at you in the mirror. The world uses a description. That description is narcissism. Narcissism, in the world's estimation, is the practice of thinking overly highly of self, of of having an excessive need for admiration and attention, believing everyone around you is inferior, for lacking empathy with others, lacking empathy even with those closest to you, not being able to view situations from another's vantage point, This is a person who generally feels entitled. They feel justified. They seem only to draw close to others if that other person is going to give them something. He or she can't listen to correction, can't listen to criticism at any level because facing up to mistakes or flaws or sins is something to be avoided at all costs. And so the world of psychology calls this narcissistic personality disorder. We don't believe in that because it's the only disease that that is is the disease of sin. This is what the Bible says about that activity. 2 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 2, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power. What does Paul say? He says, keep away from such men as these because these are the opposite of believers in Christ. Nobody wants to be in that category. All who are married have something in common. Every one of you is married to a sinner and we all exhibit selfishness in one way or another. But rather than doing what Paul warns against, the believer in Christ ought to have a different pursuit Paul said in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the first part of our thoughts concerning self-love, the cover-up of self-love, it's it's hypocritical, it's a cover-up. It's the second part. We'll call this the cruelty of self-love. The cruelty of self-love. Now, Jesus makes a bold statement here that the one who divorces his wife, except for unrepentant adultery, he makes her commit adultery. Now, what does that mean? This has often been taken to be a prohibition against remarriage. But the fact is that the few exceptions which allow for divorce by default allow for remarriage because divorce in those hopeless situations that are rare 
of a completely unrepentant sin, that that was meant as a mercy of God, particularly for a woman who needed a husband who would be decent to her in a world where, where you needed a husband to support you and to help you. Now, again, because this topic is so complex, I need to take another slight digression because I'll bet many of you here have been raised hearing the phrase, I call it a Christian slogan, God hates divorce, right? You say, well, that's what's what the Bible says. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from an unfortunate traditional translation of Malachi 2.16. Our own legacy standard Bible, which is really just an updated version of the New American Standard, says this. Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts. The New King James Version says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. The English Standard Version, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. I gave you those three other translations of Malachi 2.16 to illustrate the obvious problem. The opening Hebrew phrase is alternately translated four different ways just in the examples that I just gave you. And so that gives rise to this mythological understanding of this text. So how do we understand that? What was happening in Malachi 2? The book of Malachi could be summarized as a book that explains to a post-exile Israel, after Israel, a, a, a remnant of them had returned, that if they want God's blessing, they must be faithful to obey Him. That is a principle all throughout Scripture. And in Malachi 2, God gives two lines of evidence that Israel's covenant unfaithfulness was showing badly in the post-exile era. First of all, He indicted them for their illegal intermarriages with pagans. Malachi 2, 11 and 12. Why are you marrying these that aren't even part of the nation? And secondly, he charges Israelite men with unjustifiable divorce. In verse 13, God points out the natural consequences of men of Israel divorcing their Israelite wives to marry pagans. Here are the consequences. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or receives it as acceptable from your hand. Let me put this in terms we can understand. These are men who are divorcing their wives because they see a, a, a pretty woman who lives in the neighboring nation and, and he wants to marry her. And then they're going to church. I'll, I'll use a modern vernacular. They're going to church and weeping and crying and saying, why aren't you answering my prayers, Lord? So God asks the question that the men of Israel should be asking. Why does he not receive our worship any longer? Why will God not receive our worship? God answers his own question in verses 14 through 16 that these men have been divorcing their wives, dealing treacherously against the wife of your youth. The act of divorcing their wives to marry pagan women, worshipers of false gods, it compromised the spiritual unity of the nation, it compromised the devotion to Yahweh of the whole nation of Israel. They've acted faithlessly, they've acted treacherously. This is referred to five times in just verses 10 through 17. Treacherously, 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 treacherously. God's special people were diluting their set-apartness right after having been rescued by God from exile. They undermined their covenant with God. Now there is a, a little translation issue with Malachi 2.16. And I don't want to get too much into the detail here, but just to explain... It begins with a little tiny word called a particle. And this particular particle can mean indeed, for, if, or when. The whole chapter is basically one big if-then statement. And so the syntax, the, the grammar, gives preference to the if. And so the most literal translation is, is if he hates and divorces. And based on the immediate context of verse 15, the wife of your youth, we can say, if he hates and divorces his wife. Now, I want you to know this is, what's the traditional translation? I hate divorce, says God. 
That now becomes the Christian catchphrase, God hates divorce. But that doesn't accurately reflect the text. The verb translated hates, or the English Standard Version, does not love. This is a third-person singular verb. It cannot be translated, I hate. It must be translated, he hates. In other words, God is saying, anyone who divorces his wife for this reason hates her. It is a condemnation of the man. It is not a blanket statement of God hating divorce. So it's most accurate to say, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. Covering his garment, it's a a figurative language, a figure of speech to say um, that you've put something on. Metaphorically, what does he put on? He's put on violence. We would say it like this. He has blood on his hand. He's guilty. He's done violence to his marriage, to his wife, to his God. One theologian says this, it's a cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement on the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate. Such a man deprives his wife of the very things a husband is responsible to provide, blessings, good, protection, praise, peace, justice, and he stands condemned by God. So God is not condemning every divorce in every situation. What God is specifically condemning is the divorce of innocent Jewish wives because their husbands were taken in by the allure of younger, immoral, pagan women. In other words, God is condemning divorce which occurs for selfish, preferential reasons. So God's condemnation is on unjustifiable divorce, not on justifiable divorce. Justifiable divorce is still painful. It's still tragic. But it's not one that God condemns. And you can't use Malachi 2.16 to say God hates divorce. That's become such an ingrained part of Christian tradition that almost any Christian, if you say, did you know that the Bible never says God hates divorce? They would say, well, yes, it does. So that's unfortunate. Now, with that foundation we can get back to what Jesus is saying, that the man who divorces his wife for selfish, immoral reasons makes her commit adultery. What is that about? That sounds unfair. You just said that there are justifiable reasons for divorce. What does it mean that he says makes her commit adultery? This should be taken as what linguists call hyperbole or exaggeration. It's not to prevent remarriage, but it's to explain the cruelty that's rendered to the victim of a selfish man getting rid of his wife. Jesus is explaining that kingdom citizens, followers of Christ, are characterized by right relationships with God and with one another. He's challenging these self-righteous, false believers who are focused on the letter of the law rather than the intent of the law. And so the immediate context actually makes it very easy to prove that Jesus is using exaggeration. He's using radical exaggeration. Right here in this text, we see it. He's using exaggeration to focus on this internal root of evil, the internal wickedness of the heart and immorality. Where else do we see exaggeration? A couple of verses earlier, verse 28, Jesus states that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intentions has already become guilty of adultery. He's not making legislation that says every person who has ever lusted should be prosecuted. He's saying simply, lust of the heart is the real root of sexual immorality. How about this one? The verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He's using the picture of the right eye to speak of the true desire of the heart, the true cause of sin. He's not making a law that says that if a man looks lustfully at a woman with his right eye, then you go to court and the bailiff will rip your right eye right out of you and then you're good from there. And so in the same way, Jesus isn't making legislation, not making law, that now even innocent divorcees legally guilty of adultery, which was punishable by death, by the way, Deuteronomy 22, that, that, that anyone is guilty of adultery must be treated as such. He's not saying that. He's showing the results of when hypocritical false believers trash their families and their marriages. He's not focused on the wrongly divorced woman. He's focused on the damage done by the man divorcing his wife. Follow along. 
He says he makes her commit adultery. The consequences for divorce for a woman in the first century were life-changing. They were devastating. Generally speaking, listen carefully, her life was ruined as if she had committed adultery. Doesn't matter whether she did or not. What usually happened with a man? His life went on as normal. In Jesus' day, for a divorced woman, there were only three realistic possibilities for her. First, she could live with a generous relative, but there would be relationship strain and the stigma of being divorced with the assumption from the community that something was wrong with her. Second, she could remarry, but she was seen as damaged goods. She had wrongfully gained a reputation in the community as an adulteress. The society would assume that she had committed adultery since her husband put her away with a divorce certificate. Or the third option is that she could begin a life of prostitution to support herself and her children, now truly becoming an adulteress. And in all three scenarios, the stigma of adultery is attached to her all because her husband decided he was done and wanted a younger model. Now you might say, oh, I I would never do that. I would never place my spouse under that level of condemnation. But it is possible to make your spouse live under the constant condemnation of you're lucky I stay married to you. That's basically the same heart attitude, isn't it? A constant condemnation of making certain that they know they never measure up. They're basically unforgivable. It's the same sin, just under the same roof. This is the the form of the cruelty of self-love. Seeing yourself as the constant judge, jury, and emotional executioner of a power... A spouse who never measures up. Consider Tom and Trina. I always try to pick names of nobody I know. (laughs) Tom is constantly nitpicking Trina because the house is never clean enough. Meals are never exactly right. Nothing is ever good enough. It's a form of cruelty because Tom is treating Trina as if her sole aim in life is to perfect herself in order to make Tom happy. Instead, Tom needs to practice gratitude and humility to show appreciation. Or consider Bill and Bianca. Bill likes to watch the occasional soccer match on TV. He played soccer as a child. He's maintained an interest. He understands he needs to care for his household and spend time with his wife and kids. But anytime he desires to watch a soccer game, Bianca berates him for being selfish and not thinking of her or or worse when she's angry about him for something else. She brings up the soccer matches as if it's right up there with drunkenness and violence. Instead, Bianca could make snacks and join him for the pastime that means a lot to him. She needs to ask herself, would I want to live with me? So instead, you celebrate, you get to know and relish and appreciate who your spouse is in all areas of preference and and difference. You don't treat differences as sin issues. They're not. Don't treat every preference as a sin issue. Self-love causes cruelty to your spouse. And when you truly believe you're the most important person in the marriage, and I don't know if anybody would actually say that out loud, but their actions show it, you create a situation in which the other person is now having to endure some sort of heartlessness, some sort of mercilessness. We would say that's part of God's plan to sanctify you if you're in that situation, but for your part, that sort of habitual self-justification is actually a major, major spiritual danger. The whole point of today's message is is that the authentic Christian protects his marriage, protects her marriage. Why is that a spiritual danger? Because that sort of self-justification is not compatible with a regenerate Christian. So there's the cover-up of self-love, the cruelty of self-love. And let me finish our time today with what I'll call the catastrophe of self-love. The catastrophe of self-love. What did Jesus mean when he added in verse 32? I mean, you think, can it get any worse? He makes her commit adultery. It gets worse. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What did he mean by this? Is this an admonition that the divorced person can never remarry? Well, it can't be that because the entire point of allowable divorce was to allow for remarriage. 
Or did Jesus mean that anyone marrying a divorced person is legally guilty of adultery? He can't mean this because that would be directly contradicting the remarriage provision of Deuteronomy 24. In the context of Jesus' condemnation of the original husband, this is much more about the first marriage, not about the second marriage. It's about the sin of the one putting his wife away. So here's the situation, and it's pretty easy to understand. Remember that culturally speaking... Jesus said that the man who wrongfully divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. That in the eyes of the small community in which she was a part, if a man divorces his wife, she must have been guilty of adultery. By the way, if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or a priest and you divorce your wife, well, of course, she's the the wrong one. She must have been guilty. And so she's treated as if she's an unrepentant sinner. Now, let's say that this woman who's been wrongly divorced by her selfish, self-loving husband is able to remarry. Remember, her options are very limited. And in this culture, everyone knew everyone. So the question is, the man she remarries, what's the community going to suspect about him? They're going to suspect that he's the one with whom she was unfaithful. Not only would the divorced woman carry the stigma of adultery, any man who married her had to be willing to be considered that as well. Post-divorce marriages can absolutely be a grace of God, but they still carry bitter memories and bitter difficulties with them. And so Jesus is trying to help avoid that. It creates catastrophe. Now, I want to kind of shift gears here, and I'd like to talk about the catastrophe of self-love. I want to give you three applications. Two are very short, and one we'll spend the rest of our time on. First application is a warning in all love, and that is that it's possible to outwardly remain married and yet be so habitually selfish, so unpleasable, that it creates a a catastrophic atmosphere in your house. It's, It's that way all the time. And if that doesn't move you or at least make you contemplate that maybe you're part of the problem, my concern is the same as the name of the series, Authentic Christianity. Because our marriages are to be a reflection of what Christ has done for us, a reflection of grace. The second application is short also. Very, very practical. On Saturday, July 1st, Dr. John Street will be here to speak to us for two hours on conflict resolution. And this is not just for people who are in conflict. This is also for people who may need to start a conflict to resolve an ongoing issue that's never resolved. Third application, and we'll we'll spend our last moments on this for a bit of time here. To avoid self-love, to give a reminder of what marriage is to be, concepts that the Bible gives us concerning marriage, I'd like to give you the ideals with an L, not ideas, ideals, principles, the standards that will protect your marriage from self-love that's so contrary to God's design. I'll give you six of them, and we'll call them gifts. Six gifts of God's design for marriage. These are the ideals. This is the highest. These are the standards. The first we'll call the gift of mutual belonging. The gift of mutual belonging. The leave and cleave command of Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a change in loyalty. It's a change in allegiance. The idea of leaving is used to speak of leaving a former covenant. And the idea of holding fast speaks of, of allegiance and commitment. And so the old covenant, as it were, between a girl and her parents in which she comes under their authority, now that's replaced with a new covenant, as it were, in which she and her husband are now the covenant community. They are the ones in covenant together. Song of Solomon best illustrates the concept of mutual belonging, mutual ownership. Three times in the book, there's a sense of ownership that's declared. Chapter 2, verse 16, the bride declares, My beloved is mine, and I am his. In 6 verse 3, the bride declares, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And the third time, chapter 7 verse 10, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now why is she saying this? She is making a clear statement 
to Solomon and about Solomon, who is literally the most popular man on planet Earth, that he is mine. And he, we know how that ended. He didn't abide by that, but she did. She's asserting the exclusive nature of their relationship and making certain that he knows and every other woman knows he belongs to me and I belong to her, to, to him rather. It's a second gift. We'll call this the gift of mutual love. The gift of mutual love. I think many Christians can quote the famous part of Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. But the lesser known command, the lesser remembered command is Titus 2.4 commands young women to love their husbands. In other words, love is to be mutual. I know that's not earth-shattering news, but marriage is designed to be the one place and one relationship where each spouse can be assured of mutual love. What does mutual love look like? Well, it has characteristics. Mutual love is unconditional. It's not based on what the other person can do for you. It's covenantal love. You've made a covenant to love. It's not a contract that I'll love you until you do something. This love is also sacrificial. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's not just words. It's expressed in deeds. We love 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's, it's sacrifice. This love is purifying love. You help one another with your, your walks with Christ. The picture of Ephesians 5.26 and 27 of a husband presenting a pure bride is, is lived out as a husband seeks to love his wife in ways that will beautify her spiritually. Pursuing her spiritual growth It may even include making God-honoring decisions even if they go against a wife's preferences at times. The godly husband doesn't let himself be pushed around in matters of principle. Both Abraham and Adam made a similar mistake. They listened to their wives when they should have held their ground. And in the same way, a wife loves her husband by helping the sanctification, not in a nagging or disrespectful way, but as a sister in Christ that a husband has not just a wife, but a sister. Love is unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's purifying. It's affectionate. It's affectionate love. This is love which connects deeply on an interpersonal basis, which cherishes the other person. This is affectionate love expressed with words and deeds and physical closeness. You've all seen the, the older couple that meanders into a McDonald's and they sit and ignore each other for three hours and then walk out to, oh, what's the point of even being together? No, there's affection. It's an understanding love. It's an understanding love. First Peter 3, 7, the husband should live with their wives in an understanding way. It literally means in Greek, according to knowledge, knowing her. Wives are to understand their husbands as well, to work at knowing them and adjusting to their needs and desires. Unconditional love, sacrificial love, purifying love, affectionate love, understanding love, and affirming love. Affirming love. I I find it ironic that in the one relationship that you should expect to find affirmation and help is where we most often find denigration and criticism. Constant criticism works against love. Instead, praise and support are the order of the day. the third gift the gift of protection the gift of protection in exchange for the help and affection received from his wife the husband is to be a protector and keeper of his wife protection includes the duty to love the duty to to cherish by protecting his wife and respecting her as one equal spiritually in other words the husband is to protect his wife not only from difficulties in the world, the harshness of life, but also to protect his wife from his own sinful tendencies. The New Testament's teaching on protection doesn't deal so much with the classic, and I've heard men say this, well, I would take a bullet for my wife, and well, you keep acting like that, she kind of hopes you will. And that's kind of the way that goes. (laughs) That's not what protection is. I think you could ask any wife, do you want your husband to give to, to, to die for you. No, I want him to live for me. Instead, there exists more the sense of protection 
from the harshness of life. 1 Peter 3.7 calls her the weaker vessel. Embrace it. It's okay. And husbands are to be a help with that. She, he's not to expect that she handles life at the same level or that he's to fight the battles he's expected to fight. He honors his wife as a spiritual and marital equal, a fellow heir of the grace of life, the joys which rightly belong to both, and he protects. He protects. Here's a fourth gift, the gift of help. The gift of help. Eve was created for Adam to be his helper. Genesis 2.18, Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The mutual companionship of marriage includes this vital component of a wife being a, a helper, the colleague, the friend to her husband. Only a spiritual equal, only one also made in the image of God can complete Adam, can complete the man. And so the calling of the wife, the primary purpose for which she was created is to help her husband fulfill his God-given role in life in the different areas of career, family, and ministry. It is a worldly model that says, let us both pursue our happiness in the world, pursue our careers, pursue all of our goals and dreams, and we'll happen to live under the same roof and have kids while we do it. That's not marriage. The wife is to complete her husband and bolster him in all areas of life. A God-honoring wife will aim her life at helping her husband thrive and succeed in everything to which he's devoted his time, devoted his life. Now, based on this foundation in Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5.22 now makes so much sense that wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This isn't about authority or hierarchy as much as it's about function, about the wife fulfilling her joyful role in helping her husband. It necessitates submission or else the roles now, they're blurred. Marriage becomes a competition for importance. The command of wives is part of God's word. It's in the best interest of the Christian woman as part of obeying God's infallible scripture. There's no such thing as a woman who doesn't believe this to be true who is also content. She doesn't exist. Biblical submission isn't about fear. It's certainly not about domineering. It's about a a, a teamwork. It's about a joyful, helpful attitude. Submission is best understood in the context of being a helper because this gives functional purpose. There's a tangible sense of this teamwork, this togetherness. That's what brings your marriage joy. Tangible way that Scripture guides a helpful, submissive wife is found in Peter's practical admonition in 1 Peter 3, 2 to demonstrate respectful and pure conduct that preserves the team, that preserves the the bigger mission together. What is our mission together? What are our goals together? It preserves that. Proverbs 12.4 speaks of an excellent wife being a crown to her husband as opposed to a wife who brings shame, being like rottenness to his bones. So the excellent wife adds dignity to her husband with help, with teamwork, My wife has a beautiful quality to her. She has a mind that never stops. And we've done this a thousand times, haven't we, sweetie? Where I say, I don't know what to do about this. Let me put an idea in your brain. And then you can almost hear the wheels turning. And three weeks later, she says, I know what we ought to do. I've done that a thousand times. Because that's how she's built and that's how she helps me. That's one of many, many ways. Be a team. That's what that gift is. Then, of course, we have fifth, and we we don't put this first. The fifth is the gift of loving intimacy. In addition to all the other benefits and purposes of marriage, God gives marriage sexual intimacy. This has been from the outset of creation. It is the sacred sign and symbol of a covenant relationship. It demonstrates oneness and unity. This is not a suggestion, Hebrews 13.4 associates the honor of marriage with the honor of the marriage bed. Let marriage be held in honor among all that the marriage bed be undefiled. The undefiled marriage bed speaks not only to the sexual purity 
and cleanness that's provided by marriage, but also the honoring God by maintaining the marriage bed. It's not just a suggestion. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4 commands this union. It is the sign. It is the symbol of marriage. In the same way that the Lord's table is the sign and symbol of our faith. And then finally, to put together these ideals, these gifts, the sixth is the gift of family. The gift of family, Psalm 128, when you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well will it be for you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. You know what this describes? This is phenomenal. This describes, it says, the innermost parts of your house. I love that translation because that's very, very accurate. It actually speaks to the middle room of a house that was, now I know I'm about to start a remodeling project in many of your homes now. That was a room for the wife to do all of her projects where she could plan, where she could flourish, where she could create and do whatever she does to help the home. Then you have the picture of children as young olive trees, a a symbol of vigor and vitality in the Bible. It paints a, a portrait of life and promise and potential. That this gift of family is the, it is the bedrock upon which God meant our world to be built. Now let me ask you this. When a family is being torn apart, when a family is acting in a way, when children are not obeying their parents, they're not being disciplined, when couples are treating each other terribly, and then they go to church on Sunday morning and say, boy, we're Christians. What does that do for the world? What it does for the world is say, hmm, Christ must not make much of a difference. And so you see, the authentic Christian protects his marriage, protects his family, because that's our witness to a dying world, isn't it? That's our witness to a dying world. Your marriage is an outworking of your faith, of authentic Christianity. Speaking on behalf of all the elders, I I would say that one of our most frequent prayer requests to the Lord is to pray for the marriages of Grace Bible Church because it is through the marriages that the world will see that Christ has changed us, right? And so that's, that's our prayer today, that the marriages at our church be characterized as pleasing Christ so that we might benefit kingdom gospel work. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are stunned at how blunt Jesus is. In the matter of two verses, he drops theological bombshells. And yet, plumbing the depths of what he meant, what he's teaching, renders for us, Lord, a solemnity, a sobriety when we think about our human relationships. That it, just as Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? And He answered, of course, rightly. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our relationships are our witness of authentic faith. And so I pray, Lord, that our church would be characterized by marital relationships, by father and child and mother and child and parental relationships and grandparent relationships that are pure and decent and holy and loving and sacrificial and giving and affectionate. That a watching world might wonder how might I have that as well and open the door for the gospel. We pray that in your final estimation of Grace Bible Church in the end times, that when you evaluate our effectiveness, that you might be able to say that these are people who protected their marriages according to my will. We pray this for the glory of Christ, our Savior. Amen.